This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic churches on Sunday, January 30th, 2022. On the church's calendar, it's the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time, Year C. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm here to share some background and context information about the weekend scripture. It's gathered from the work of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators and offered in the hope that it will make the Mass more meaningful for you. But fair warning, all this information is sifted through my own tiny brain. If you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture readings as I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship. From the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. We're making quite a shift in the tone of the scripture at this Mass compared to the past couple of Sundays. Two weeks ago, we were partying heartily over the abundance of God's gifts. Last week, we heard about the power of God's Word proclaimed among the faithful and the not-so-faithful. This Liturgy of the Word today is all about the way-too-common societal reaction to the proclamation of the truth, outright, even violent, rejection. Both Jeremiah in the first reading and Jesus in Luke's Gospel are facing that problem head-on. This week, it's Paul who supplies the uplifting passage as we hear what are perhaps his most often quoted words. So, I'm going to save Paul for last in this episode. So, let's look at the passage we have from Jeremiah. First, we get just a few words about his call to take on the task of being a prophet of the Lord. In the immediately following verses that are left out of this lectionary selection, Jeremiah shows his reluctance to take the job. And that, by the way, is a good indication that his call to this task was genuine. Those who are eager to be called to prophecy are most often self-proclaimed, and lacking any divine connection, much less any divine authority. So the young Jeremiah objects. God wins the argument. Of course God does. Jeremiah learns that he was destined for his ministry even before birth, with words that we ourselves might pray, especially in times of searching and discernment. God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I dedicated you. The second part of today's passage makes up a part of the warning, let's call it full disclosure, from God to Jeremiah about what the job of prophet entails. In short, the message is, the ones to whom I send you are not going to like what you have to say. This might sting a bit. As the passage continues, the language changes to include images associated with Jerusalem and, perhaps, even further extended to the entirety of the Jewish people when they are faithful to their role of being a light for other nations. The warning still applies. Expect resistance from the corrupt 
and the powerful. Here, then, is our reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I dedicated you, a prophet to the nations I appointed you. But do you gird your loins, stand up, and tell them all that I command you. Be not crushed on their account, as though I would leave you crushed before them. For it is I this day who have made you a fortified city, a pillar of iron, a wall of brass against the whole land, against Judah's kings and princes, against its priests and people. They will fight against you, but not prevail over you, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. The Word of the Lord In the time frame of this passage, Jeremiah was, in fact, a very young man. The king then on the Judean throne was Josiah, whom Scripture tells us was a good, pious, and just king trying to clean up a terrible mess he'd inherited from his father, Amon. Josiah was one of the good guys. But the population of Judah included few others, most having fallen into idolatry and debauchery. After Josiah's death, Jeremiah would suffer through a succession of pretty awful rulers in Judah. And that's when things got really tough for old Jerry. He has been called the weeping prophet. He repeatedly tried to hand God the Old Testament equivalent of his resignation letter. But no dice. We do find reassurance of God's protection in this passage. Remember he said, They will fight against you but not prevail over you. But read that closely. God does not promise to keep opposition from attacking Jeremiah. God does not promise that Jeremiah will suffer no injury. God does promise that in the end, the opposition won't win. At one point, Jeremiah was tossed into a cistern. That's an underground chamber for storing water. He was left for dead. But he did make it out eventually. It takes perseverance to overcome. Now we look at the responsorial psalm. Taken from the 71st Psalm, the day's responsorial caps off Jeremiah's work with an individual's lament. The persona of the psalmist is that of an elderly person in distress. The one suffering the trial runs to God for protection and deliverance. In the final stanza, we have the psalmist apparently anticipating God's rescue, promising to praise and give thanks to God daily. Here it is. I will sing of your salvation. In you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your justice rescue me and deliver me. Incline your ear to me and save me. I will sing of your salvation. Be my rock of refuge, a stronghold to give me safety. For you are my rock and my fortress. O my God, rescue me from the hand of the wicked. I will sing of your salvation. For you are my hope, O Lord, 
My trust, O God, from my youth. On you I depend from birth. From my mother's womb you are my strength. I will sing of your salvation. My mouth shall declare your justice day by day, your salvation. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and till the present I proclaim your wondrous deeds. I will sing of your salvation. At least one commentator has noted that the placement of this psalm in this Mass might be to reflect the great frequency and urgency with which Jeremiah himself ran to prayer, seeking God's protection and his strengthening throughout the many hardships that Jeremiah faced during his ministry. The Gospel for this Mass is a continuation from last week's passage. Then we heard Jesus read on the Sabbath day in the synagogue from the prophet Isaiah's scroll. His proclamation of Isaiah's words in the midst of the people of his childhood home, Nazareth, garnered him great praise initially. The words with which we closed last week's gospel are repeated as the opening this week. And now we see the radical nature of what Jesus said begin to sink in for his audience. It seems obvious to me that there was admiration for what must have been the graciousness of his presence and the wisdom in his voice. And the assembly was mightily impressed. But then came the questions. The first one, isn't this the son of Joseph? can be read two ways. It might connote great pride and satisfaction that one of their own has attained such skill and understanding in the Scripture. The passage says, They were amazed. That sentence contains a nuance we're likely to miss. You see, the word translated as amazed is often a euphemism connoting one that has been impressed but is not willing to commit himself to that which is proposed. Alternatively, the question about Jesus being Joseph's son might be an expression of derision, that one from a humble background such as their own would be so presumptuous as to speak so boldly. It might be anger at the implication that they just don't get it. Whatever the individual reasons, the tone that prevailed as the incident progressed was hostility. Now, those in the audience are assuming a who-does-he-think-he-is attitude. Jesus gives them further provocation when he speaks of Elijah and Elisha, celebrated for their holiness, both went into the territories of Gentiles to perform great deeds. Jesus also has come home renowned for works done far away, not among his own people. He's standing among men who clearly want those great works to be done among them alone, or at least among them first. Jesus is forcefully proclaiming the universality of God's grace and mercy. God has chosen this people not to be exalted above all, but so that they can show other nations the way to unity with God. The Jewish people, he's telling them, 
do not have exclusive rights to all of God's goodness. Here comes a reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus began speaking in the synagogue. Today, this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke highly of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They also asked, Isn't this the son of Joseph? He said to them, Surely you will quote me this proverb, Physician, cure yourself, and say, Do here in your native place the things we have heard were done in Capernaum. And he said, Amen, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own native place. Indeed, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine spread over the entire land. It was to none of these that Elijah was sent, but only to a widow in Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Again, there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When the people in the synagogue heard this, they were all filled with fury. They rose up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town had been built, to hurl him down headlong. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went away. The Gospel of the Lord Every Nazarene hearing Jesus would have been very familiar with the Isaiah scroll from which Jesus read. They would have understood these verses as the description of what the Messiah would accomplish on behalf of the Jewish people. In case you haven't read either the first or second book of Kings lately, here's a little refresher on Elijah and Elisha. First Kings tells the story of the great prophet Elijah coming to the aid of a widow in Zarephath. The widow lived in the region of Sidon, north of Israel, in modern-day Lebanon. This was Gentile country. A three-year drought announced by Elijah himself had caused extreme famine throughout the region. This widow was down to simple ingredients for one last meal with her son. She told Elijah, When we have eaten it, we shall die. But Elijah prophesies a miraculous multiplication of her resources if she would but feed him that last bit of food. God does keep his promise. She and her son have food to last through the drought. Scripture also tells us that the same widow's son would later die and be raised from the dead by Elijah. Second Kings records the prophet Elisha, who was Elijah's successor, curing the Syrian general Naaman of leprosy. Both the widow in Zarephath and Naaman were Gentiles. These two Jewish prophets went to them with God's grace and mercy, not their own people who were suffering similar troubles. With this reminder, Jesus tells his hearers of the past wickedness of the Jewish people and implies the hard-heartedness of the current generation. 
the reaction from the Nazareans in attendance is predictable. Their desire to kill Jesus and the ultimate failure of that effort can legitimately be seen as prefiguring the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What happens here, early in his ministry in a small way, also happens in the most dramatic of ways at the end of his public ministry. In his commentary on this episode, 4th century Bishop St. Ambrose of Milan wrote the following, Understand that Jesus was not forced to suffer the passion of his body. He was not taken by the Jews, but given by himself. Indeed, he is taken when he wants to be. He glides away when he wants to. He is hung when he wants to be. He is not held when he does not wish it. Here he goes up to the summit of the hill to be thrown down. But the minds of the furious men were suddenly changed or confused. He descended through their midst, for the hour of his passion had not yet come. Now, let's take a look at Paul's hymn to love. This passage is probably the most often chosen scripture option for marriage rites. It's also heard at funerals with some regularity. It was the very first bit of scripture that I was required to memorize as a student at All Saints School. Full disclosure, the name All Saints did not really apply to all of us who were the students. Yes, this passage gives us beautiful descriptions of the proper way in which we are to use the gifts we are given by God in service to the community and to other individuals. Context is instructive here. Remember, Paul has been trying to lead the Corinthian community away from being jealous or competitive or judgmental in recognizing their own spiritual gifts. They are a diverse group with a great variety of gifts present among them. This seems to be dividing them at least as much as it is unifying them in service to the society at large. So here Paul hopes to make them understand the one absolutely essential characteristic that must be present in the exercise of any spiritual gift. Love. And thanks to the precision of the Greek language, we know exactly the kind of love about which Paul is writing. Agape. That's the word throughout this passage. It goes far beyond mere physical attraction or familial loyalty. It is not mere friendship, no matter how sincere. Agape is the self-giving, self-emptying, creative and generative love that seeks only the good of the other. Agape is the word that most closely approximates divine love. I'm confident you've heard it before. Well, you're about to hear it again. This is a reading from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, strive eagerly for the greatest spiritual gifts but I shall show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in human and angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. 
And if I have the gift of prophecy and comprehend all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I hand my body over so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It is not pompous. It is not inflated. It is not rude. It does not seek its own interests. It is not quick-tempered. It does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If there are prophecies, they will be brought to nothing. If tongues, they will cease. If knowledge, it will be brought to nothing. For we know partially and we prophesy partially. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I used to talk as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. At present, we see indistinctly, as in a mirror, but then face to face. At present I know partially, then I shall know fully, as I am fully known. So faith, hope, love remain, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The Word of the Lord So what if the words were initially recorded as part of Paul scolding the Christian community in Corinth? They are beautiful and moving nonetheless. Their message is simple. Use whatever God has given you in the mission of Christ, but use it with great love, or it is futile. One last thought. It's sort of a cautionary bit of advice, really. Consider again this sentence in the way that Paul describes this agape love. It bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is not an endorsement of what some have labeled doormat spirituality. Paul is not setting his audience up to be exploited by compulsive liars or pathological fascistic despots. He is not saying, believe everything you hear. Keep it in the context of the whole passage, and especially with his final statement. So, faith, hope, love remain, these three. We can and should read this not as always have blind trust. Rather, Paul is telling us, never give up on anyone. Keep hope in your heart even for the most repugnant. All right, again I find myself sliding toward a homily, so it's time to say enough for now. And may our gracious God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.